0: The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there. Nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Ascends reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Our God, we come to hear from you and your word. We ask indeed that you would do so. We ask that your Holy Spirit would go forth and cause your word to accompany it and accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. And Father, we pray for the hearer that they would indeed hear the very voice of Christ. And we pray for the speaker, Lord, that, we would, that he would not fear man, but would fear you and you alone. All this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it that gives you joy? What is it that brings you just sheer delight? Maybe it's simple things that happen in life. Often it is the simple things in life that give you the greatest joy, aren't they? Maybe it's watching your favorite football team win, or hearing the sound of an engine revving before a race, or maybe it's dancing with your husband. Maybe it's a smile of a child. Maybe it's watching a young couple say their marriage vows and seeing your family get together for dinner. What is it that gives you cause for joy? What is it that gives you reasons to rejoice? You see, as we live in a world that is broken, a world that is filled with suffering and pain and death and separation, trials and troubles of all kinds, we live in a world that, that is hurting, and we often find ourselves hurting as well. There is plenty of brokenness and pain to go around in this world. I'm not trying to minimize that pain or to uh, um, brush it aside. I simply want to ask the question, is there a way for us to find joy in this world in the midst of all of its brokenness that surrounds us? Is there ever anything worth rejoicing about? Well, beloved, this morning, the scriptures tell us that we each have reasons to rejoice, even as scripture calls us to rejoice again, or rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4. It calls us to set our eyes on whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, to rejoice in all these things and in all circumstances. But the question is, do we do so? Have we indeed found Reasons worth rejoicing, rejoicing, and do these reasons control our lives? Do we know, in fact, that according to the scriptures, we have a reason to rejoice in the midst of a broken world? Or instead, do we allow ourselves to be filled with worry and anxiety about what may or may not come? Things that we have no control over, little control over. Can we really do what the Bible calls us to? Rejoice always as we hold on to these things that we are worried about and anxious about. Can we really rejoice when there is so much that is in our lives that we uh, often find are easy to complain about? I think many of us consider ourselves uh, realists, you know, half-glass-empty kind of people. We don't want to call ourselves pessimists because that's too negative. Uh, But we find ways to complain about what is indeed in this world, do we recognize that there are reasons in fact to rejoice? And they come indeed from this scripture before us. This morning we come to a text in the book of Isaiah that really centers on our only reason to rejoice, a reason for joy and hope and rejoicing even now in the midst of whatever troubles you may face, whatever trials you may be going through. We have a reason to rejoice in the midst of a broken world. And Isaiah 35 starts out with this picture of a wilderness undone. Wilderness undone. As you come to Isaiah 35, you come to a text that really is uh, is kind of like coming in the middle of a contrast where you hear uh, just the second half of something being compared to something else. There's a comparing going on in this particular text to the previous chapter. And in order to uh, really make sense of our text of chapter 35 this morning, we have to recognize that contrast. We have to understand the context as much as the case with, uh, I think, every scripture passage that we've looked at through the season of Advent. You see, to, uh, to things that are being compared to one another. But again, just as these other, each of these texts we've looked at this Advent season, we, you have to see the surrounding context for it to make sense. What is it that leads to this high moment in Isaiah, in, in this book that we've been going through? Well, if you step back and you actually go look at chapter 34, you get a pretty good picture of what's going on. What makes Isaiah 35 so glorious to behold and sounds so rich in our ears? Because in Isaiah 34... We're witnessing a desolation. Again, you know, the book of Isaiah can be pretty much split right down the middle between judgments that come and then this great relief that will take place after. Often the book is filled with these judgments of God coming against the nations, against the peoples of the earth, and Isaiah 34 is no different from it. You see, as you come to Isaiah 34, the God of the Bible, the God of this world, calls the people of the world to give an account All the nations of the earth are called and they are being called near to give ear to God for God is about to deliver his judgment upon the nations. All the nations of the earth are to be judged and to give an account in this particular text. And Isaiah 34 says these words, it says, The stench of the corpses of the nations will rise. The mountains will flow with blood. God will judge all of his enemies All those who have opposed him, all those who have hated him, all those who in their pride have rejected him, he will judge the earth and it will be a day of ruin and desolation for many. For the Lord has a sword and he will use it. And he comes to wield it in divine wrath and righteousness and he brings his sword that is sharper than any two-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of Christ himself to condemn all of his enemies. And Isaiah says in this chapter, it's very vivid, this sword is covered in blood, it is soaked in the blood of his enemies, it is covered in the fat of his enemies. Edom will be destroyed, those descendants of Esau who are God's enemies, and all of the enemies of God will in fact be judged. They will be slaughtered like wild oxen and mighty bulls. And the text says, and hear this, the land will drink its fill of blood. The soil of the earth will be gorged with the fat of the fallen. The land itself will drink so much blood that it cannot drink anymore. It's a very vivid, bloody imagery, if you think about it. But the point is clear. God has a day of coming judgment, and he will come. And on that day, he will wipe out all of his enemies, Verse 8, for the, day, or for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And that day will be a day of such destruction that the lands of the earth will be wasted. The earth will be soaked in blood, streams of water will be turned into streams of pitch, and sulfur smoke shall go up forever. The land will become a wasteland, a desolate place, unfit to be inhabited by men. And God will stretch out his plumb line of emptiness over this place and it will become an empty desolation, so empty that wild animals will move in and take it over. The whole back portion of this chapter is speaking about how the wild animals come in and take over this wilderness. This is a place that has once been a blossoming and blooming city. Think of New York City and now it is taken over by the animals of the wild, the hawk, the porcupine, the raven, hyenas. Wild goats, night birds, the owls will build their nests here. It's a picture of a civilization going to ruin. You can think of those uh, 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 post-apocalypse movies uh, where some disease has spread out throughout humanity and the cities are now empty. And the wild animals have started to move in. It's becoming overgrown with thorns and thickets. That's the picture that is going on here. And God says, that is what it will be like when my judgment comes. It will be severe and it will leave the nations of the earth as a wasteland, fit only for the beasts. That's chapter 34. And then you come to chapter 35, and suddenly everything is different. Everything just spoken about is reversed. There's a complete turnaround in the text, you'll notice. A total change, a reversal is taking place in our text. No longer will this land be a land that will drink in the blood of God's enemies and be gorged by it. But now the wilderness has been restored. And more than restored, notice the language of the first verse. It has become fruitful land. It is a land that rejoices. It is a land that has come to life. The desert that has been barren, it will bloom with crocuses or roses The dry ground will be no more. Waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Picture that. Anytime you think of a barren desert, that is the last thing on your mind. And yet here are waters in abundance. You can picture it. You know, these arid wasteland and suddenly water is bursting forth like a fountain from the midst of the dry ground. New life begins to take hold because of the waters that are in this place. Streams now flow where there was only sand and dry earth once before. It is bringing with it new life. Pools of water now stand where once sand alone was. Bulrushes and grasses are here. You can picture the, the, the scene. It's like springtime anew in a place that has been completely barren. All around where it was wasteland... And wilderness is new life coming and blossoming. Living water flows and it is so abundant that there's nowhere for it to go. It's running in streams. It's turning into pools. It's bursting forth from the ground. It is an undoing of the wilderness picture that you just had. This cursed wilderness of barrenness and desolation. It is being undone. It is being wiped out. And both the land itself and all who belong to God are being restored, according to our text. They will rejoice. Again, as I said before, notice verses 1 and 2. It says the desert itself, the land itself, will rejoice. And some commentators suggest, and I think they're right, that it's better to understand it. This is God's people with the land who dwell in the wilderness, and they will rejoice because of what is happening to the land, because of this reversal, curse being undone. They have a reason to rejoice. In fact, you see this all throughout the text. The question is, what is it? What's going on here? What is, God's, or what is it that is causing God's people to have a reason to rejoice about? And we see in our text, a remnant restored, a remnant restored. What is the reason those dwelling in the wilderness have to rejoice? I mean, that's the tenor of the text. It's rejoicing. It is this the mark of this text. You have a reason to rejoice. Even the land itself that the people of God walk on will rejoice with all those who dwell within it. So what's going on here? Well, you'll notice the wilderness is turning into a garden, it's transforming from desolate wasteland into a paradise. And the glory of the Lord is shown forth. The majesty of God is revealed. God is most glorified in his undoing of the curse. Isn't that true? What does that mean exactly, that the curse is undone? Well, notice what verse 4 says. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and he will come with with the due payment of God for those who hate God. And yet, in the very last line, yet he will save you. God will come and he will bring judgment upon all the enemies of God that has not been completely done away with. And he will give each the payment that is due to them. And the same, and at the same time, he will bring salvation to you. Sort of the same theme we've seen over and over again during Advent. Judgment will fall upon one group of individuals. And the result is bloodshed and vengeance. It will be ugly. It will be a horrifying reality of judgment. A blood soaked earth. And upon the the other individuals, he comes to deliver them, to save them, to be their savior and bring salvation. For some, the wilderness is a gory mess. It will be this desert wasteland. For others, it is turned into a blossoming water field. Why? How? How will these things be? The text tells us because he comes as a ransom for many so that the ransom of the Lord will return. For these ones, for the people of God, he comes to save them, to deliver them from the oppression of this world. All those enemies of God who hate him and defy his varying being. God is coming and he is coming to judge his and our enemies and to save you. Therefore, let your hands, verse 3, be strengthened and your weak knees made firm. You know, your knocking knees. Make them firm again. When God's people are called, you know, much like Joshua's. They were entering into the land of promise. They were being called to be strong and to be Courageous. For in this day, in that day of Joshua, God would go forth and judge all of his enemies and deliver his people. That is the reality the text is honing in on. The text sort of moves and is speaking in this way to say, be strong and courageous, strengthen your hands and your weak knees, for God will go forth and he will indeed judge his enemies. But those enemies are your enemies too. And at the same time, he will deliver his children through this very fiery furnace. And the text moves on, sort of, to speak of these strange things that will happen as he does this, sort of the results of this coming judgment. A radical change will come when the Lord comes. We've already seen how the land is altered. But notice the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap like the deer. Not just walk again, but leap and dance and sing or d- for joy. The mute will sing for the joy that is within them when the Messiah comes and when he begins his reign. All of these things will begin to take place. These things that have been brought by the curse, they will be undone. And it moves on and it tells us a highway will be raised in the wilderness. The way of holiness, a way so clearly marked that even fools cannot miss it and fall off of the way. No beast of the field can come upon this new way that is raised up. The redeemed of the Lord will walk there. And they shall come to Zion through this holy way, to God's holy hill, the very place where God dwells, Mount Zion itself. What is this all about? What is Isaiah talking about when he starts talking about a highway or a path to Zion? I'm sure you already recognize, but this is no ordinary road. Now, this highway, it has been in the midst of a land, mind you, that was a wasteland, but now it is a place of new life that is manifested everywhere. And now in the midst of all this teeming life is, uh, and flowing water is a highway that cannot be missed. It is a, a raised road. In the ancient world, highways were always raised roads sort of to protect you from uh, um, being ambushed, or that was the intent. Every road was sought to be built up and high. That's why it was called a highway, as as I understand it. I could be wrong, but it was a road that was elevated so that all would know the way and be able to follow this road. What is so special and unique about this highway is where it leads. That's really the source in this particular text It leads directly to Zion. Zion is the place where God alone dwells, where the holy God of all this world, who rules supreme, dwells in Mount Zion. And this highway, this road, this path, it leads into the presence of God himself. It is a roadway that Isaiah will speak about again and again and again, making it clear what he is talking about here. Isaiah 40, verse 3, tells us a voice cries out in the wilderness, right? John the Baptist, who we read about even this morning. A voice cries out in the wilderness, makes straight the way of the Lord, makes straight in the desert highway for God. God is coming to his people, and he will use this way, this path, this new and living way to bring his people back to Zion. Isaiah 43, 19 tells us that God is doing a new thing. He will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is making and preparing a highway. And with this highway, he will bring new life. God will bring about a new thing, something that has not been seen before. He will cause new life to come out of death and curse and barrenness. And finally, Isaiah 62:10 says, Prepare the way for the people. Build up the highway. It will be a signal to the peoples. Behold, your salvation comes. His reward is with him. People have got all of this language about a road and a highway. It is about God. Making a way for salvation. God is making a way for the redeemed of the Lord to come to himself, to return to him. He is building a pathway. He is opening up a new and living way back into the presence of God. A way through the cursed wilderness to himself.
1: God is making a
0: path where there has been none before like at the crossing of the Red Sea. It's the same imagery that you're supposed to be seeing. God opened up this pathway where one had not been before. And through this, as you pass through the judgment upon the right and upon the left, new life is held out for the people of God. There's people that have been brought out from a land of slavery into his household through a pathway that did not exist before without the miraculous working of God God has made a path here in the midst of a barren, cursed wilderness, and it leads directly into his presence. And the people of God, they will go to him, they will find this pathway, they will flow to him like streams running up a hill. Not downhill, but up to Zion. God's people will be drawn to him and upon him on this new way. The text is just steeped in this rich, imagery but what does it all mean how do we understand it what does this have to do with rejoicing the people of god if you just step back for a moment this whole text is about god's coming it has to do with god's kingdom coming and how glorious it will be when it all comes and the promise to god's people is that god will come and when he does come judgment will fall upon those who reject him And at the same time, salvation will come to those who are his, those who are drawn near to him upon this highway, upon a new path. And people of God, this has already begun. The kingdom of God has already been manifested and begun on this earth. What is it that Christ proclaimed about himself when he came? He declares, I am the way. And no man comes to the Father but by me. He is the one who you must travel to to enter into the presence of the Father. You want access to the hill of the Lord. You want to enter into the presence of the Father. You can only come into the kingdom of God through me. I am the highway to God. And if you come to him through me, you will have everlasting peace. Notice what Jesus told his disciples, or the disciples of John rather, when they came to him. In Matthew 11, and ask him, are you the Christ, or should we wait for another one? John is sitting in a jail cell. He is about to be executed, and before he dies, he wants to make sure he's been pointing out to the right, or pointing out the right guy, that this is the Messiah. And Jesus says, what do you see? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are made clean, These ones who have been unclean are now able to enter into the presence of God. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. Tell me, John, what do you see? The kingdom of God is here. and It's coming through me. It is brought into this world through me. I am the pathway to the Father. Indeed, and John, what other signs do you need to know that I am making the way to the Father, that the kingdom of God begins and ends with me? The entrance into God's kingdom and presence is here. God coming in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. God himself is here. He's opened a new and living way to the Father. He is the way of salvation come in the flesh. But in order for God's people to come into God's presence, the vengeance of God against our sin has to be paid. It has to be dealt with. Someone had to pay that ransom price for the ransomed of God to be able to return to him. And Christ does. He lives a perfect life. He becomes the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks about. He lives perfectly in our place. And yet when he dies and rises again, he undoes death itself. It has no sway over him. And he is undoing the whole of the curse that causes barrenness in this world. He is making a highway through his death and resurrection. New life flows from him to you, people of God, as you walk upon this road, as you are being drawn into the very presence of your God. Notice what is the result of all of this. What is the end result for all of God's people? Verse 10. Everlasting joy. It will belong to the people of God. It will be upon your heads. It will be worn as a crown upon you, one that cannot be removed. There will be gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Why? Because the curse has been undone. Sin will be no more and you will dwell in the presence of the Father. It will run, sorrow and sighing, it will flee away, it will run from before the redeemed of the Lord. And there will be singing and rejoicing and gladness for God is with his people. Just as Emmanuel was here and came and was with his people in the flesh, And in that place, in the kingdom of God, when it is fully manifested, we will indeed see the lame, lame leap for joy. Not just walk, but lame leap. The mute will not just talk, but they will sing for joy. There will now be a reason to rejoice like never have we seen before. The curse of sin is done away with it. It has been washed away as waters will wash away the dry ground of a wilderness. When the Jews would return to Jerusalem each year for the pilgrimage feast that happened three times a year, they would go up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is up on this mountain or a hill. they often called Jerusalem Zion, as, as they would draw near, they would sing as they ascended the holy hill of their God, because they were ascending to Zion. They were drawing near to God. God was drawing his people to himself. And they would rejoice at the work that he had been doing in them. People of God, that work that they longed for, that they looked forward to, it has been done in the Christ. He has come, he has undone the curse that was upon this world. It is completely dealt with in his death and resurrection and in his second coming. The Curse will not resound upon this earth. It will be removed from it as far as the east Is from the West. And people of God, if you are in Christ Jesus, surely you have a reason to rejoice. For no more will sin and sorrow flow, but indeed there will be joy everlasting far as the curse is found. People of God, in Christ Jesus, we have a reason to rejoice no matter what happens in your life, no matter what difficulties you have in the holiday season. Whatever troubles may be happening at work, you have a reason to rejoice. For you are being brought into the very presence of God through Christ Jesus, the only Redeemer of man. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, how we long for you to come. How we long for the day when all things will be made new, where we will see this whole creation re, uh, reworked and created even more glorious than uh, in paradise itself when you first made it. And Father, we long for that day, but while we are living in this day, we pray, Father, that you would cause us to rejoice from, the, uh, from our hearts. We pray, indeed, that you would give us reasons to sing for joy at the work of your hand and that we would know that we can sing only because of the perfect works and merits of Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you and thank you for him and for the redemption that is ours through faith in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would indeed strengthen weak and weary knees, strengthen our hands, for surely you are with us and your glory will be made known. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.